0: You want to take your bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. Springtime, it's likely you've uh, attended a wedding, not this year certainly in years past and now you've been to weddings but you probably haven't encountered a bride like this. There was a, a lady by the name of Karen Mains. She wrote a parable of a of a wedding and she wrote about how it got started and There were the groom and all the party up front there. And the the groom was looking sharp, man. He had his shoes were shined. He had his shirt tucked in. That shirt was pressed. His coat was on. Every hair was in place. He was smiling. He was looking good. Everyone was just looking awesome there. And then that moment that they're all waiting for, everybody stands up. They turn to the back of the church and they take that first look. At that bride, and all of a sudden, there are these gasps. I mean, like, they couldn't believe what they're seeing. I mean, instead of seeing a bride all decked out and smiling, I mean, she's bloody. She's got cuts on her arms, one of her legs twisted. She's got a, I mean, someone nailed her in the face. She's got this big black eye. There's blood coming out of her nose. And they're like, what is going on? And then... The author, Karen, writes this, quote, does not this handsome groom deserve better than this? And then she writes this clincher. Alas, the bride, the church has been fighting again. And she titled her parable, The Brawling Bride. Now, really, is is this the image of the church? Is this really what the bride of Christ is to look like? Are we supposed to be taking each other on at a drop of a hat? Are we really like, oh man, someone looked at me funny and so all of a sudden they're my latest enemy and we're cutting people apart and hurting people? Is that really the picture of the church? Are we merely just to tolerate one another? We've got some differences and so we tolerate. We just kind of hang out with a few people that we can get along with. Is that the picture of the church? Or is it something far greater that Jesus Christ had in mind? He, the heavenly bridegroom, we, the church, those who believe in Christ, are the bride. You remember what Jesus said? In John 13, verse 34 and 35, Jesus made these statements. He said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And then he said this, By this, all men will know that you are my disciples by your love, for one another. You see, people in this world will know that we are followers of Jesus Christ by how we love one another. You could reduce it down to this very simple statement the reality of Christ is seen by our unity with each other. And then when we come to the book of Philippians, that becomes a point that is strongly emphasized. In Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 20, it emphasizes and Paul gives very clear instruction on in how the citizens of heaven are to live in community on earth. Now, any time we ever have a discussion about how you and I are to live like, really the discussion has to begin with who are we? Who are we? And we are actually, if you look at Philippians chapter 3 verse 20, we are citizens of Look what he says, Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. He says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The church isn't just a social group where we share some common values. The church are, are people who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is their Savior and their Lord. They recognize that we're sinners in great need of a Savior, and we have placed our faith in Christ. Those people that believe in Christ are the church and their local manifestations. Fellowship is one. It's a local manifestation of a larger body of Christ. We are a body of Christ. We are actually, what the text says, citizens of heaven. This is pretty astounding. Now, this this letter, Philippians, was written to the people of Philippi. Now, Philippi was a Roman colony. If you were born into this Roman colony, Philippi, and you, you were born of Roman parents, you were automatically a citizen. You had all the rights and the benefits of being a citizen of the Roman Empire. Now, what's very interesting is that most of the people that were Roman citizens had never actually been to Rome, but they had all the benefits and the rights of being a citizen. And that is true of Christians. We haven't been to heaven yet, but that's where we're going. We have all the rights, all the benefits, all the joys of heaven because we know Christ, but we haven't been there yet. But we need to know that is where we are going. We are not just people trying to tolerate one another. We are citizens of heaven. And notice what he says, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Christians can be identified with a Christ focus. They are anticipating his return. Do you Remember, Jesus said, I am coming back. It was promised in the Old Testament that he'd come, and he arrived right on time. He fulfilled all the prophecies that were written about him, and he declared to the world, especially through his resurrection, I am God, and then he made the statement, As sure as I've come, I am coming back. Be ready. And that is why Christians have a Christ-centered focus. We are focused on Jesus Christ. We are eagerly awaiting his return, because why? Verse 21 who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has He has even to subject all things to himself. This is Jesus Christ. You know, really, the whole Bible focuses on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. If you would like to know more about Christ, if you looked at Philippians chapter two, it's amazing because the Philippians chapter two emphasizes the magnificence of the incarnation. Who is this Jesus Christ, people ask? Why well, he is the eternal son of God. He has existed from all eternity. And the amazing thing of the incarnation is that he actually took on flesh and bones and entered into humanity 2,000 years ago. We celebrated at Christmas. He has come into humanity for a purpose. And that purpose is to rescue his people from their sins. In fact, that's what it says in Colossians 1, 13 and 14. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, whom we ha- in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. All of us have sinned. All of us have offended God. We've done our own program. We have lived self-centered. We have ignored God. In fact, we have, may have used his name in vain or li- actually lived our lives in disdain for him. It's all indications that we have missed the perfect mark. That's what sin means, and we need a Savior. You cannot bring about salvation no matter how much you try to clean up your act or how good you try to be. You and I, we need a Savior, and God has provided one in Jesus Christ. And in Philippians chapter 2, he actually talks about that, that although he has existed in the form of God throughout all eternity, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But do you know what Christ did? He emptied himself. He emptied himself of the, of the use of his divine prerogatives at his, own disclosure, at his own will. He now submitted himself to his Father's will, whatever you would want. He took on the form of a bondservant, and being found in the likeness of men and being found in the appearance of man, as of a man, he humbled himself to the point of obedience, even death on a cross. That is who Jesus Christ is. And you know what Christ has done? Christ has saved us from the very penalty of sin. See, the wages of sin is death. Someone has to pay. Either you will pay the penalty of your own sin, or you accept Christ's payment. He has paid the penalty in full by dying and taking on God's full wrath and just wrath against sin. He took it upon himself. He not only has saved us from the penalty of sin, do you know that Christ has saved us from the power of sin? And one day, when we're with him, We'll actually be saved from the very presence of sin. In fact, that is the day that he's talking about in verse 21. He is going to transform the body of our humble state, our body that is so prone to temptation and to sin and to doing the wrong thing. You need to know that God is going to bring about a transformation. He is going to bring and give us a body that is like the resurrected son, fit for eternity to bring glory to him. I know it's popular. In fact, you can find a book that says that your best life now. But you know what the Bible says? Your best life is later. It is to come. Right now, things might be good or they might even be terrible. But you need to know that in heaven, in the presence of Christ, why we are going to experience untold joy, unending worship. We are going to worship not because you're commanded to worship, because that will be the absolute response when we see the splendor and the glory and the continual activity of the living God. And so he says, remember, friends, you are citizens of heaven. We're just merely living here on earth. And in chapter four, verse one, he says, therefore, As a result of the fact that we are citizens of heaven, he says, my beloved brethren whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord. And he's going to tell you and I how we can stand firm. Now, I want you to not miss chapter 4, verse 1. Notice how he refers to these people, the people in the church of Philippi. He says, I long to see you, you're dearly loved, you're beloved, you're my joy and crown." Spiritual leaders, pastors of churches—you see, their people in their church are like bring them great joy. Now, you might be familiar with a crown, like in the athletic games, they would give the victor a wreath. But they would also, perhaps, at the end of a life—a life that was lived nobly and well—they would also give a wreath, a wreath to celebrate a fruitful, uh, an accomplished life. The health and the vibrancy of a church is a spiritual leaders or a pastor's great joy. And he says, you need to remember, not only are you citizens of heaven, but you, he's, Paul says, you are, you are a source of great joy for me. You are like a crown to me. And so I want you to stand firm. Now, that word stand firm, that, is, that was the word that was used of soldiers who were standing at their post and they were ready. And Paul is going to, in Philippians chapter 4, and we're going to spend the month of June looking at this, he tells you and I, how we are to stand firm in the Lord. That is in contrast to being disoriented, or easily misled. And so he's going to say, I want you in this way to stand firm. And it may surprise you in what he says, but this is what he says in terms of standing firm. If you and I are going to stand strong, we have to realize that the reality of Christ is seen by our unity with each other. He begins by all of us corporately he tells us how we are to live and we have to learn how to live well with one another being a christian is individual god does not save people on the group plan it is an individual one by one placing your faith in jesus christ but there is a corporate identity that is absolutely critical to christianity christ is the head we are his body we are the, he is the bridegroom. We are the bride. And we have to learn how to relate well to one another. It is not an option. The idea of Lone Ranger Christianity, I'll take part when I want to. I'll be rather isolated. I'll come to the church when I need help, but otherwise I'm going to do my own program, is foreign to the New Testament. It is not what God intended. It is certainly not what Christ talked about. And it is not what is emphasized here. You know what is emphasized? Is that you and I learn how to live together. In, unity. in fact, notice what he says, verse 2. And I bet you could have heard a pin drop when this letter was first read about 2,000 years ago. I urge you, I urge you, Dea, and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. There was something that had taken place Something between these two women, who obviously had significant spiritual ministries, but there had been a division, had taken place, and it was starting to affect the entire church. And so he writes, "I want you to stand firm in the Lord, my dearly beloved ones." Verse one: How I urge you to these two ladies to live in harmony in the Lord. Harmony literally means to be of the exact same mind. Like for instance, this morning. Our worship team had harmony. Harmony is when you have complementary tones. It sounds good together. They're not the exact same one. There's multiple ones, but they sound right together. That is in contrast to dissonance, where you have conflicting tones and it's not working and you're not on the exact same page. We are to live in harmony with each other. Now, when we talk about harmony, well, people think, well, that's great. You know, everyone can live with the ideal church, but you know what the challenge is? The challenge, however, is to live with the real church. Real people, flawed, idiosyncrasies, like me and like you, we have to learn how to live in unity with one another. And how are we going to do that? You know, how are we going to live in a situation where we're in harmony with one another? Now, let me uh, give you a little illustration here. Uh, if you're looking for something fun to do this summer, you go to the Cameron Park Zoo. And uh, when they opened that uh, exhibit about the Brazos River Valley, they have this uh, exhibit with these bears. They have these black bears. Have you guys seen that? Okay, some of you have. Okay. It, it is a great exhibit. I mean, you can get up close and front with these bears. And the first time I saw that exhibit, these, they had these two black bears in there, and they were like wrestling with each other. And it was, I mean, it was very interesting. It's fascinating. They are so strong, and they're kind of throwing each other in the water, and they were playing, and I was like, and I, had, I they came to a point where they have this plexiglass where I could put my face right there, and they were right there in the water, kind of thrashing around. And it was, it was a lot of fun to watch, you know, and a lot of people were gathered around to take this, and I probably stood there for 20 minutes watching these black bears kind of go after each other and push each other around. Now, it's one thing to see black bears at a zoo, wrestling around with some nice, strong plexiglass between you and the bears. It's a whole other thing when you're right there with the bears and no plexiglass. Let me tell you, friends, when you and I make the choice to not get along with the people in our church, to allow maybe just a small misunderstanding or a little rift to start to escalate, and we start misinterpreting, and we start assigning the worst possible motives to these people it's not, it's not entertaining, it's not funny, it's not cute. It can have disastrous effects. Because, you see, we represent Jesus Christ to our world, and if we cannot learn how to live in harmony with one another, we're going to send the wrong message about our Savior. And that's the most important message we send at all. And so we need to talk about what does it look like when you and I learn how to live in harmony with one another. There was a problem. Paul actually addresses it. He actually names these two ladies. I would imagine there were others involved. He says, you ladies, I urge you to live in harmony in the Lord. I mean, can you imagine if our soldiers who are fighting in Afghanistan and Iraq, instead of fighting after fighting terrorists and trying to bring priests, all of a sudden started fighting one another? Why, what would happen? I mean, they'd be totally off mission, Right. We're like, what are you guys doing? We need to be absolutely unified. We're going in the same direction. We're on the same team. We do not hit each other, shoot each other. No, we have to be on the same team. That is the exact same at the church. I mean, we can take a, a little something, and all of a sudden, it just becomes just like chaotic. And I mean, pretty soon we have this little problem. It becomes bigger and bigger. It involves all its emotional energy and problems, and we might try to rally support from others. And it should not be that way. It's kind of like this. If we don't learn how to live in harmony and actually deal with problems as they are starting, it's like just a little bit of snow, like a, like a little small snowslide. pretty soon it becomes like an avalanche. And it can actually bring about the division of an entire church. You know, on essentials, we have unity. Essentials like the nature of God, the person and work of Christ, the the gospel, um, the authority of his word, our mission to proclaim the gospel and to make disciples, absolute unity. But on things that are secondary of nature, we have to learn to have charity, or we might want to refer to it as grace. Let me just give you how you and I can pursue harmony on a day to day basis. Let me tell you it it's proactive. You have to actually be involved it is not passive. you have to be involved it's it's you and I continually abiding in Jesus Christ that means to abide in Christ is to to trust him as the sovereign God to enjoy him to talk with him to to read his word and to understand that God is communicating truth about us about his about the world about him through his world through his word, and we actually read it and synthesize it to our life we desire him we enjoy him we abide in Christ. And let me give you another element of just pursuing harmony day to day. Not only are we growing in our relationship with Christ, but we need to learn how to appreciate other people. That is to find things that you can see the life of Christ being manifested in others. Let me tell you, it's real easy to find flaws in people. Okay? Like, you know, most of you have gotten to know me quite well. It's very easy to pick out my flaws. And you can focus on those. And I thank you that you don't seem to focus on them or tell me all about them. But you could. You could just, oh, look at Grant, all those deficiencies he has. And every time you think of me, you're like, yeah, but he doesn't do this or whatever. But you, actually, we need to learn how to appreciate each other, how we see God at work in another person, whether that be like, well, they're, they're, they reflect um, the life of Christ in some different ways. They're welcoming. They're a servant. Perhaps they're organized. They're great with kids. They can, they can lead. They can teach. They have a great ability to express art and uh, worship. I mean, you find things and don't focus on the negatives. That's easy to do. It takes it takes challenge. It takes grace to focus on the positives in someone. And not only do we appreciate people, but you and I need to also abide in His word. What does His word say about how you and I are to relate to one another? In fact, the Bible gives us this great little key. It always gives this phrase: "One another," like love one another, serve one another, um, come alongside one another. Bear one another's burdens. Those are keys on you and how you and I are to relate to each other. But, what happens when there is a rift, like verse 2? What happens when you actually don't see eye to eye? Now, you need to know this. Every significant relationship has times where there is conflict, where you don't see eye to eye. It happens in every marriage, parents with children, siblings, roommates, Co-workers, uh, it happens in the church. You find an example right here. The question is not if conflict arises. The question is when. It's going to occur. Now let me give you a statement that perhaps you haven't heard. Conflict is not bad. It is an opportunity to glorify God. That's what conflict is. It is an opportunity for you and I to glorify God. So how how would we actually do that? Well, first of all, you have to start with being sure that your heart is right with God. Seems like anytime there's a problem or a conflict or a misunderstanding, the focus is like on the other person, right? And in actuality, the focus needs to start like, well, Lord, hey, what what is going on with me? You see, more important than you getting the truth out is that you have a right response to the situation that you're facing. In conflict, I don't know if you found this, but I have found that I learn actually a lot about myself when I experience conflict. In fact, it's a lot about myself that I really don't like. Maybe you've realized the same thing. You see, if you will take a step back and move yourself out of the heat of the moment and actually go before God and say, Lord, what's going on in my heart? Why am am I so angry? Where is this bitterness coming from? You might find that in actuality there is a heart condition that's much worse than the little problem that triggered it. This is an opportunity for you to grow and to mature and to glorify God. And so we find that not only do we see issues in our own heart, but what it does, conflict reinforces our great need for Jesus Christ. We need his perspective, his peace his strength. We find ourselves in a situation where we need him greatly. So when you find yourself experiencing a conflict in any of these scenarios, your marriage, your family, someone in the church, the first thing you need to do is you need to go and make sure that your own heart is right with God. But then you also, you need to take the initiative. Once you realize that there is something not quite right, you need to take the next step. You need to either meet with them, write them a letter. And if possible, it's best to meet them in person. But you need to establish some sort of contact. Now, this kind of goes against the grain for some people because like, well, if this person offended me, then they've got to come to me first. And then we'll, we'll maybe talk. But they're going to come over here. And then they've got to humble themselves. Can I just ask you, what scripture verse is that from? It's not... In the Bible, Jesus gave no such command. He actually said, seek peace and pursue it. As soon as you're aware, you who are spiritual, get involved in the process. And so you take the initiative. You go and you seek to talk with this person about the situation. Don't be making it a public campaign. Don't try to rally your support. Don't like, well, I'm going to call my 10 different best friends and tell them all about this problem. No, no, no. You who are spiritual, make sure your own heart is right before God, and you go and you take the initiative, and you be involved. Now, it seems like when we have conflict, we have the need for forgiveness. And I'd like to take a few minutes to talk a little bit about forgiveness. What is it? You and I are going to find ourselves in a situation that, by grace, we need to forgive other people, each other. What is forgiveness? Forgiveness is this. It is to cease to feel resentment toward an offender. It is the conscious choice to release someone from the hurt that they have caused you. Now, any time that I even say the word forgiveness, it gets really quiet. And you might even have like hairs going up at the back of your neck like, oh. Because all of us have been hurt in life. Most of us, if not all of us, have been hurt significantly in life. You're sitting next to someone who's been scarred badly. We've all experienced hurt. And we all need the balm of forgiveness. But it is such a difficult concept. In fact, when we think about like forgiveness, I know that couple, some of you are probably just like, I cannot forgive. There is no way. They have hurt me so bad they did me so wrong i will not forgive and i just want to tell you you're right you can't you you can't forgive but god can work forgiveness through you if you question the almighty power of jesus christ just skip down and look at verse 13 of Philippians 4. It says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You and your own resources, of course you can't forgive. Us and our own resources, we make a mess of things. We make matters worse. You who are unspiritual and you're trying to kind of work things out and, and get things straightened out, we make matters worse. But us under the empowerment of Christ, under his lordship, under seeking what he would want, why well, then all things are possible through Christ. And so we consider the subject of forgiveness. Now, when we talk about forgiveness, you're going to recognize that you're going to have a need for forgiveness because there's something going in your heart and it'll look like bitterness. It'll look like the constant churning in your mind. This keeps coming up over and over and over again. These are triggers that are like red flags that saying we need to have forgiveness. Now, forgiveness is seldom like a one-time affair. Let's just talk a little bit about forgiveness here. Forgiveness Depends, it actually depends on how significantly you're hurt, okay? Small issue, forgiveness can actually happen pretty quickly. You can move forward. Major issue, life-altering issue, uh, it's going to be a process that you will have to reaffirm in your heart over and over and over again. Now, you need to know that you extending forgiveness to someone may not actually heal the relationship or the situation. You cannot determine the outcome. You cannot determine how the other person is going to respond by you forgiving them. In fact, don't do this. Don't just say, well, I'm going to forgive this person because I hope that they're going." I'm going to get something back. That may not happen. Do you know why you and I forgive? We choose to do what is right because God has revealed in his word and he's empowered us through his spirit. When we talk about forgiveness, forgiveness is releasing someone. And you know who our model of forgiveness is? It's God. Do you know how God forgives? This is interesting. If you want to know how God forgives, you can find it written in Hebrews 8:12 and Hebrews 10:17. It's written in, as established of the New Covenant, and God says this: He says, "For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more." Did you miss it? Maybe so. So he had it written again. Hebrews 10:17 and their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. What do we know about God? We know that God knows all things. Theologians say he is omniscient. He knows all things. And yet, God knows all things, but he chooses not to remember our sins. He makes the conscious choice not to see our sins. In fact, do you know when God looks and thinks of you, which is as a state of being, do you know that he always sees us united with his son, never in our sin? He does not see us as wretched, miserable, a sorry excuse for life. He sees us as united with Jesus Christ. He loves you with an infinite love. In fact, he loves us with an eternal love. And he chooses not to remember our sins. You and I might want to pull them up at time to time god doesn't and that is our pattern for forgiveness we choose not to remember when that hurt comes back after we've forgiven that person we remember i remember forgiving them clara barton who is the founder of the american red cross was reminded one day of a, a vicious event that had taken place where this someone had really injured her and uh but clara barton she was obviously a woman of great character she uh, She acted as if it had not happened. And one day, someone reminded her of what this event that had taken place in her life. And and her friend said, well, don't you remember? Don't you remember it? And this was Clara Barton's response. No, I distinctly remember forgetting it. To remember no more. It says in the book of Proverbs, chapter 10, verse 12, Hatred stirs up strife, but love Covers all transgressions. Some of you will probably remember when Ronald Reagan uh, was attacked, and there was an attempted assassination on his life by John Hinckley Jr. Uh, I remember hearing about that. I remember like being around with all my friends, and we were just kind of sitting there, trying to reel, reeling with this, and realizing the implications of what uh, John Hinckley was trying to do in killing President Ronald Reagan. Now. It's really interesting. I actually read a book by Peggy Noonan and she has a great chapter on Ronald Reagan and what happened in that whole scenario where he's brought to the hospital. But there is what what Reagan did in terms of forgiveness was life impressionable. In fact, his daughter, Patty Davis, wrote this about this event, and I'd like to read this. After the 1981 attempt, she writes, the quote, The following day, my father said he knew his physical healing was directly dependent on his ability to forgive John Hinckley. By showing me that forgiveness is the key to everything, including physical health and healing, he gave me an example of Christ-like thinking. Unquote. Friends, we're going to have hurts. We're going to hurt each other at different times. It's an opportunity to glorify God. And we have to learn how to forgive as he has. Some of you have some significant hurts. Perhaps you came here today and you were not thinking, "Well, I'm going to surface this. And right now, I mean, you're even reeling with this. Friends, go to the Lord. Talk to him about this. And if it's a significant hurt, you need to find a place and time, like a park, go for a long walk, go even someplace else, to go and to deal with this matter and before God, ask for the ability to forgive and forgive that person. Where possible, go to that person. Maybe this person has passed away, then it would not be possible. Maybe this person's out of your life, and it's not realistic. But if possible, go to the person. When we're talking about how you and I are going to live in harmony when we don't see eye to eye, we have to by grace Forgive. Let me just give you a couple others. We, we need to reevaluate our expectations. No one is perfect but Christ. If you set the bar so high that you, of course, can't jump over it, and neither can anybody else, you need to tone her down some. Okay? We're just people, imperfect people, united to a perfect Savior. That'll help us give grace to situations, realizing we all make mistakes. And let me just throw out one other thing. Don't let one relationship ruin your life. If you have someone who just, they, they refuse to change. Maybe they're in your family. Uh, maybe they're a coworker. You've given forgiveness. They've thrown it back in your face. I don't want to talk to you. Whatever. Okay. You send a nice letter. They send you a quick note. Get lost. You know, okay. Don't let one relationship ruin your life. In fact, if needed, involve someone else to help you, especially in the church. And verse 3 says, indeed, You see this in Philippians 4, verse 3? Indeed, true companion. I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. He says, if you... In fact, he says this true companion, this yoke fellow, I ask you, help these women. We are all... We have our names written in the book of life. God has recorded where we're going. We are citizens of heaven. We've got to learn how to live in unity with one another. Why? Because we reflect the living God to the people we're around. So for you, is there a person that you need to go and to take the initiative and to go extend forgiveness and make whatever wrong a right? It's kind of like um, like if you took a dime and you, you have this dime. and You know, you can do one thing with a dime. You could take the dime and if you put the dime, like, right in front of your eye, I mean, like, that's all that you can see is the dime, right? It's like, ugh, every time, it's just, it's just there in my eyes, almost like a contact. But if you know, if you take the dime and you hold it out and extend it, why, all of a sudden you get perspective. And it's just a dime, but there's a lot of other things. Friends, if you just focus and fixate on one problem and you never deal with it, it's like taking the dime and putting it in your eye. No wonder it's so irritating and so all-consuming. Friends, for the sake of the gospel, it's not worth it to be all-consumed by one relationship that's had some sort of conflict. Go and, by the grace of Christ, address it and deal with it. Go and start by telling God how much it hurts. You go talk with him, and then you go and you take the initiative. And this is not a one-time deal. This is how you and I function in the church from here on out. This is the word of the Lord, how you and I are to live. And perhaps, perhaps some of our greatest moments of being most like Christ is when you and I forgive in our marriage, with our kids, with our family members, in our church. You remember Jesus Christ? You know, when they nailed him to the cross, he uttered some words. There there is a few words that he uttered repeatedly. Do you know what they are? You find them in Luke 23, verse 34. It says, Jesus was saying, and the tense indicates he said this over and over. He says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. He uttered those words over and over. And you know, were the people responsive to him asking and pleading for forgiveness? Uh-uh. And the same verse as it says, and they cast lots, dividing garments, dividing up his garments among themselves. They could care less. It says in the book of Ephesians, chapter four, verse thirty-one and thirty-two. It says, Let all bitterness, and wrath, and anger, and clamor, and slander, be put away from you, along with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. What is it that God did not forgive you of? Nothing, that's right. Through Him, through Christ, you and I have the ability to forgive. And think of it. Think of the benefits of you and I learning how to live in unity with one another. Will be a testimony of transformation to our community. People want to say, hey, you show me what Jesus Christ does in a human life. Say, come on in and just see what a body of Christ looks like. It is an opportunity for maturity that you can move beyond just the base level, where you can actually develop and grow and mature and have wisdom, and it'll be a display of grace. But, friends, if you and I do not take to heart what God has written in His Word, if we will not stand firm, let me tell you, this body starts to break down. Bitterness is going to take root, and many people are going to be defiled. Uh if your idea of like conflict is well, I got a little conflict here, or I don't like something, I'm just gonna cut and run, right? Oh, you know, there's something that's not quite right. I'm cutting and run. I'm not willing to work on that relationship. I leave you need to know this, parents. You are modeling something for your children that they will repeat the rest of their life. You are showing them how a godly person handles conflict. You either engage, you go before God, you take the initiative, you pray, you extend forgiveness. Or you develop a rather self-centered approach and saying, "Mm, we're moving, we're taking off, we're leaving. Friends, it should not be that way. And by the way, our world is watching to see what difference Jesus Christ makes. This past week, I talked with a guy who actually uh, met with a Jewish rabbi. It was very interesting. He said that the Jewish rabbi would not actually shake his hand because he was a Gentile. He was a Christian, but he was of a particular brand of Judaism. And he just said, "I, I won't. Take your hand. No offense, but I just can't. Okay. And so they had a conversation together, and this Jewish rabbi said something really interesting. One of his big problems with Christianity is that the Christians were always dividing, they were divisive, and they were always fighting. He just couldn't understand that. You know, it shouldn't be that way. We're the bride of Christ. And friends, we have to realize that the reality of Christ is seen by our unity with each other, as couples, in our families, in our church. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, was a great pastor in the latter part of the 19th century in England, he um, had a pastor friend by the name of Dr. Newman Hall. Dr. Newman Hall wrote a book entitled "Come to Jesus." And the book was rather successful, but uh, anytime you put yourself out there, you're going to find some critics, right? You write something, you think you're doing something good, you're going to find some critics. Well, Dr. Newman Hall found a, a critic where he wasn't expecting, a fellow pastor, another preacher. And this preacher published uh, a letter of protest, and it was full of sort of vindictives, and it was, it was just demeaning, and it was public. It was just out there. I mean, he was taking his problems, not just sending him a letter, he sent it through the newspaper, Major deal. Well, Dr. Newman Hall for a while took this rather graciously, but the more popular this this article got that was out there, why you know it just got under him, and finally he put pen to paper, and he's going to let the boy have it. So he did. So Dr. Newman Hall wrote a letter, and it was strong, it was tough. I mean, you thought the first the first article got the whole thing started was bad, man. This guy laid him out of things that were true, and so what he did, Dr. Newman Hall took his letter to Charles Spurgeon, the great English pastor, and he asked if he would read it over and make any comments. And so Spurgeon read the whole letter. And at the end, he, uh, he said, you know what? This is excellent. And uh, everything you wrote is true. But then Spurgeon said, but... He paused a while, and then he said, there's just one thing that is missing. Underneath your signature... You need to write the author of Come to Jesus and then send it and put it in the paper. Apparently, the men looked at each other for a couple minutes. And then Dr. Neiman Hall took his letter with all his vindictives and retaliation. and just started tearing it to shreds. Friends, you and I, we need to learn how to bury the hatchet God's way. We need to realize that the reality of Christ is seen by the unity of his people. We must seek peace and pursue it. And we must, as the scriptures say, live in harmony with one another. Let us pray. Lord, I want to thank you for your word that is so very clear on such a critical subject. How many churches have been split apart? Rendered ineffective, giving a defective testimony to their community, because they simply did not abide in the Word and in the Son, and do as you've said and as you will empower. So, Lord, we praise you and thank you for the marvelous unity that we have at fellowship. How you have fixated our minds on Jesus Christ and following His Word and truly loving one another, growing deep, and a church learning to reach out to this community, even this world. But Lord. You've told us to stand firm and to do it your way. So, Lord, we ask that you would have your way in us. Would you be glorified in our living and our loving together and even how we handle conflict with one another. For your glory, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.